Hello and welcome to the final episode of Series 2 of the Open Fire Podcast, sponsored by Frank and Risk Management Services. A second series, we're not calling it a new series now, are we? We're no longer a new series, we're at the end of the series. This is the worst intro I've ever heard. Podcast focusing on the fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. My name's Dave Calvert and my co-presenter for episode 10 of Series 2, Tom, is I Tom know. Gilbert. Hello, mate. Does this mean we've got to have another hiatus for a couple of months until we start season three? We've got to find a sponsor for season three. Well, we have got a, we we actually have a choice of sponsors for season three. Do we? I haven't told you this yet, but that's yes, exciting. We do. So we might our have current a, sponsors in the room, and he's looking very nervy. No, we might have a collaboration next year. <laughs> that would be good. Our current sponsor is well aware and, and is up for a collaboration. It'd be good if we could afford a video so we can actually see stuff and put it on YouTube. That would be measure nice, metrics. It? We, we are actually just down the road from the YouTube headquarters as well. Dave, would you dress? Smarter? We are. If it was on video. I would lose weight if it was on video. <laughs> and <laughs> So we, we actually, this was something that I was going to mention, is it occurred to me on my way in, I was going to give Dave an envelope with a certain amount of money in it today because I still haven't given oh him my God. the money. You still haven't paid him for that? I've still not paid him. <gasps> it, was, it was the yeah. elephant in the room. I frankly found it embarrassing to remind you, Tom. Yeah, I, so it, it, it occurred to me that I owe Dave about a ton fifty. Is that is that is that all you're going to? No, I think what, we should explain to the listeners what you're talking about here. Yeah, so the three of us um, that are fat in the room, John Powell is exempt from that because he's looked trim ever since I met him. Whereas <laughs> us three are weight yo-yos, depending on the seasons, right? Um, so Dave Calvert, Anthony Robson, and Tom Gilbert had a pact. We might have been semi half cut at the time in a pub in. Somewhere near Oxford Street, I think, and we all agreed. Start of 2019. So this is January. January of 2018. No, this, this year. This year. It? Yeah, it's this year. Okay, it's this year. January 2019. Yeah. I've got the photographs. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah we agreed. We put 100 pounds in the pot each. Yeah. Winner takes all. Who could lose the most weight? And we couldn't also drink alcohol. And we were teetotal apart from three occasions but you were allowed three occasions over three months over three months and it was just teetotal for three months and it was five for a drink and there yeah five pounds per fine per drink that you admitted right and everyone had people out there looking to check on you whether you were doing it so if you went out for a drink with a client you'd check with a client to see if they were drinking or not and um to cut a long story short I owed £150 at the end of that. And he paid up more. before the end, to his credit, he paid up and said, I'm bailing out of this. Yeah, because and you'd already lost like two and a half stone. Yeah, I, I, I hit it hard in January in the first part of February yeah. and demoralised the opposition. Mm. I, I think Tom put weight on. No, I definitely didn't put weight on. <laughs> I think your drinking increased in that. <laughs> but I drank more. I think it was £150 in drink fines alone. I think you still owe <laughs> Dave £100. <laughs> and he was bribing me not to tell you guys <laughs> yeah, about absolutely. all the drinks because he didn't want to cough totally believe £5 that, every time. Totally yeah, exactly. It. So I actually couldn't afford my own drinking in the end. Um, but yeah, so it's occurred to me that I owe Dave £150 and I am going to pay him. You heard it all. It will happen. Okay, you, you do realise we're recording this. Next time I see you, Dave, I will give you... We, we are actually on tape at the is, moment. Is it going to Dave himself, or has he got a nominated charity? To... Uh, no, there was no... No. We... no. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't allowed to give it to charity. We actually made that up front. You're not allowed to give it to charity. We agreed we were going to go out and have a nice meal, I think, is what we said. Yeah. I think the winner was going to pay for us all to go out for drinks, but... 
You know, yeah, but that didn't happen. We never got there. Uh, are we actually moving on to the? Um, yeah, should we actually talk about fire safety? Area? I think I think John will decide, <laughs> <laughs> as it's our podcast. No, I think it's a very okay, valid point. Tom, of could, course, would you like to formally introduce our two guests for the final episode? Yes, of course. So we have um, John Powell, who is managing director of uh, Frank and Risk Management Services. Um, there are other consultancies available, but none quite as good as Frank and Risk Management, of course. Kind of you to say. Um, well, you know, I, I am massively <laughs> outnumbered by Frankham's employees today. It's 3v1. And Anthony Robson, who is head of fire engineering at Frank and Risk Management Services. Um, and Dave Calvert, who is head of something and something at Frank and Risk Management Services. Consultancy and business, probably. Or... Head of fire. Let's just leave it out. Let's leave it out. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Well, hello, everybody. Um, and we're going to be talking today about the 997 document that's been just been released. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of an episode roundup for the series. And um, it's probably worth mentioning that it is also the Christmas episode. Oh, it is. Happy Christmas, everyone. Indeed. So, I, I can't see Gareth from where I'm sitting, but uh, hopefully Gareth is... is uh, Decorating this podcast with jingle bells. There will be jingle bells everywhere. It looks like he's eating. He's just eating a mince pie. Mince pie, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's worth noting that uh, our regular newscaster, the brilliant Lucy Witts, is back from holiday. However, she's recovering from holiday, so she's not going to give any... She's malaria in Mauritius or something. (laughs) Uh, She will be back with us for the third series. Um, That won't um, be funny if when this is released that actually happened. Why she had malaria? Yeah, that wouldn't be funny at all. Where did she go on holiday? Mauritius. Mauritius. Oh, right. Yeah. Ah, well, that'll teach her. There we go. (laughs) Okay. So, um, right, I'm tempted to start off with PAS 7 before anybody corrects me. I know know it's been um, superseded since, but um, I was going to ask mainly uh, Tom and Anthony, actually, because Tom, you were involved in the industry steering committee on the original PAS 7. Yeah. Um, and Anthony, I know you also contributed to the writing of the original PAS 7. Very, very early stages, C- yeah. Can you guys just tell us a little bit more about the purpose of that particular specification at the time before we go on to how it developed into 997? But do, can you just tell us about the ethos and, and what the purpose of it was? It Ultimately, the idea behind PAS 7 was about taking haphazard fire risk management systems within businesses which generally fire was tacked on to an 18001 health and safety system if it was structured um and you know people might have done fire risk assessments and said that's all my fire risk management that's all i need to do and it was about taking businesses from having a haphazard approach to fire risk management to the holy grail which is holistic fire risk management yeah it's almost having a quant you know, sort of a, a quantifiable management system for fire rather than just like you say the haphazard one and yeah. of course in bs double nine double nine it's always outlined the levels of management system required with level one being the uh panacea of management systems yeah which uh, is unachievable which right? was completely unachievable well, no, nobody some... really uh, uh, even aspires to meet the double nine double nine well my no. favorite thing about the double nine double nine management system levels of which there are three level one is unachievable uh, level three is basically against the law, so there is only one, which is level two. Yeah. That's the only one you can have. But at least, at least the pass or triple nine seven makes it measurable now, whereas before it wasn't really a measurable. No, absolutely. And then pass seven got embedded into HTM code, Did so you? hospitals were. So, so in terms of the objective of yeah. pass seven, what was the objective? The aims, you know, what, what were you trying to achieve with it? I think it gave, just gave organisations a chance to 
document a management system that ensured that they were meeting all of their obligations in terms of fire safety requirements, whether it's risk assessments, design, yeah, um, and it, you know how that's audited that process. So it actually just gave them assurances that everything was getting done from top to bottom. So that's the idea. So it's more like a like a quality management system that's yeah, set down it's, it's exactly what it is. Safety. It is a quality management system for fire. Yeah. Okay. So in 2019, PAS Seven was subsequently superseded by uh, BS Treble Nine Seven. Yes. Uh, so how did this change the interpretation for users? What you know? What, what's the fundamental um, so, difference in, in a PAS compared to a British standard? So what's really important is, and a lot of people in the industry, in the fire industry in particular, don't really understand the hierarchy of standards. So PAS, a PAS, which is a publicly available specification been widely used in the automobile industry and other industries for decades right and and what it is it's a generally a quicker and cheaper route to get um a specification to market that's the whole point of the pass it still has to be formed in exactly the same way as a british standards committee people that are creating them still get the expert training from the british standards and ultimately pass just sit in, in the hierarchy of standards a pass sits just below a british standard british standard just sits below an en standard and an en standard sits just below an iso standard which is the top of the triangle um so ultimately the for the, the the modification from it being a pass into a British standard moves it ever so slightly up the chain of hierarchy of standards. So so it has more relevance. Is that we is that so how not you'd necessarily more relevance. It's just it's just the way they are created. So obviously an ISO standard needs international sign off. A European standard needs European sign off. British standard needs British sign off and passes the company that wrote them and a little body of people agrees it right. So by moving up there are more people involved in the... So, so just to kind of clarify that point for listeners, yeah. um, so, so a British standard is essentially, we, we understand it to be a recommendation of best practice yeah. rather than a legal requirement or a, an item of legislation. Yeah. So regards BS treble nine seven, are we saying people are recommended to do this but they're not legally required to do it? You're not legally required to implement triple nine seven. But if you are a hospital, HTM 0501 recommends that you do do that. Um, so it's actually become a pseudo rec a, a pseudo requirement in a hospital, yeah. right? Um, but what it does is, the important thing is that it gives you robust assurance that you as a business are meeting the requirements of all relevant fire safety standards, all relevant fire safety legislation, and you're in a system that will prevent you from dropping off and, and not meeting it on the day yeah. you have a fire, right? And and also it's implemented in line with your organisational um, statement of intent. So it's relevant to you as a business, um, which, you know, you might spend loads more money on passive than a normal organisation or you might want sprinklers everywhere as a normal organisation might not, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it gives an organisation the demonstration that you know they've put their policy together and the procedures and the, the you know their their triple nine seven management system has been documented yeah it's an auditable process so in terms of insurance yeah you know, sorry assurances that everything's getting done it's audited it's checked you know the, the whole process is in place to make sure that the proceed you know it's been sorry the management system's been followed top to bottom if it's not then you can action about you know put actions in place where you can revise your system as necessary yeah. Um, but I think at board level, probably in most of these organisations, it gives you the assurance that these things are being done. But yeah. the, the standards also are used as the baseline in terms of if there's any um, issue that 
becomes a legislative um, uh, requirement. They, they look to the standard as the baseline, as the minimum criteria that should be satisfied to... Yeah, yeah. theoretically, any management system now of fire safety within any business could, in a court of law, be benchmarked against 997. Yes, exactly, and, yeah. and yeah. the judge would say, this is the recognised way of managing fire safety. Where do you sit on that scale? Exactly. And most businesses yeah. will be nowhere near the requirements of that. Or at least they won't have documented it, right? No, but I always think it's quite interesting because you can apply you could apply the standard to a very small organization as you would like a the ISO nine thousand one standard. Yeah. An individual building could be yeah, could have you it. Know. Or you can apply it to a massive organization like Housing Association. Yeah. Um where they've got, you know, billions or trillions of pounds worth of property. Yeah. Um yet you can still apply a sim like a you know a similar system, but the you know the reach of that system is completely different. Yeah, so, exactly. so you, you talk about different types of organisation there, Anthony. Um, what I mean, what sort of organisations should be looking to implement a BS Triple Nine Seven fire management system? What is it? Uh, housing associations, main contractors, people that produce products. At what level is this actually beneficial? Well, to be honest, it's beneficial at all levels. Definitely. Um, I think when you're a smaller organisation, it's more easy to demonstrate you've got a fair level of a fire safety, a fair level of fire safety management. Uh, whether you've got a, you know a documented triple nine seven system or not doesn't necessarily matter because it's a lot easier to, yeah. to demonstrate. Whereas if you're a huge organisation, you're better off having some recognisable management system like a triple nine seven standard system, yeah. because you can then demonstrate you're complying with some kind of recognised standard. Uh, without that, it's, it will come across very haphazard and you're going to yeah. really struggle to demonstrate you're hitting all the areas you should in terms of fire safety compliance. So, so John, as as uh, uh, Managing Director at Frank and Risk Management Services, are you seeing um, an increase in your clients looking for these sort of reviews of their own in, you know, internal management? Yeah, we are actually. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of, of the early adopters in terms of the Hackett review um, that are seriously considering um, the way they're managing fire safety and they're looking to um, be able to sort of document that as a, a sort of joined up approach across all of their organisation. And um, so particularly in the housing sector, we, we're seeing quite a demand for um, the assistance in actually putting in place um, a um, management system of that kind and you know and it's far reaching as well you know one of the biggest issues that a lot of these organizations face is about the management of information and you know uh, part of a, a fire safety management system is looking at the technology they're using how they're uh, collating information say from fire risk assessments for one um, how those issues are actually being captured how they're being um, issued out for remediation so, so, so just to sort of pick up on that, and I wonder if Anthony and Tom could maybe sort of add to it. If one of John's clients is is looking for a, a review in line with Trouble Nine Seven, how, how does that look to them? What should they expect? Um, you know, if a consultant goes into internally to a company to review them, how, what does that look like? So to start with, obviously, same with anything, you go in and you'll have a gap analysis done between, you know, you've got a very clear seven areas that need to be met within the uh, triple nine seven. You'd get a gap analysis of your organisation as it currently stands as to where you sit or fall short of those seven areas. Yeah. And then obviously you'll get a um, a report that will tell you what you need to do. So, so this is done by in terms of interviews with stakeholders within the yeah, company and key people. Yeah, it'll be stakeholders, people. reviewing policies, procedures, um, 
just to see where you fall, you know, in line with that, and then you'll develop a proceed or de- develop a um, method of how the organisation can then improve to meet all areas of. So, so it relies on the client to a certain extent being very honest and open. Yeah. So that you can give them a very yeah. honest and open response. Um, to, to, to where they may fall short. The yeah, organisations have got to accept that if they're embarking on this journey, if they aren't doing it off their own back, which you can do, you could take the document yourself and, and audit yourself. And if you're small, that could be fairly straightforward. Yeah, but, yeah. but if you are if you are a large organisation, you need to employ the expertise to do the task, right? And you need to accept that the consultants aren't there to... Um, sort of find failings and shop you, right, to the fire brigade or whatever. They're there to find the problems so they can create the right process to mitigate those problems or to sort of fill it with, a, you know, some sort of um, procedure that might fill that gap. So the more you um, engage with your consultant, the more you will get out of it ultimately. Yeah, and I think you'll probably back me up, Tom, in previous experience having been involved in an audit and actually sitting there what they what is you know the thoughts that dare I say more senior level tends to be very different to the thoughts of the uh, people yeah absolutely down the, the, the way that fire safety is perceived to be implemented at the top versus what the coal face is actually doing is very different yeah. very very different um, yeah. give an example of that I mean well I mean so generally so you can always tell as a consultant so I've I've done these audits you know when I was a consultant I've done these audits in very large organizations you know um and big housing associations you can always tell how engaged they are by who you speak to first yeah and if the person you're speaking to first is the chief executive then you're like this organisation is really serious about making this happen. And I've been to organisations and I've had conversations with the CEO about fire safety and they kind of get it. You know, they've got a rough idea. They might they might push some of that responsibility onto individuals, but they will perceive that if they've got a good understanding of fire safety, the average Joe on the ground will definitely get it. And then when you go and talk to the average Joe on the ground, they haven't got a clue. Or vice versa, people on the ground might know loads, but the people at the top, haven't got a clue about their legal responsibilities because obviously they deal with so much, you know, other stuff. Um, but I, I think with Grenfell Tower just over two years ago now, with phase one being released, I think, although this is going to sound controversial, I think if you are a large social landlord or you are a large private landlord, if you haven't implemented this system yet, you should have done. John, is that something you would echo to, um, you know, is it a message that you're sending out to your contacts and your clients? Is something that this is how people should be looking at their own uh, management systems to review them in terms of their fire safety integrity? Yeah, we're looking at it, you know, as Tom was saying, to, you know, take take this as more as, as a positive action for these organisations because it's, you know, the gap analysis that the guys have mentioned serves to identify any potential weaknesses within that within that business and that's got to be a good thing if we can just you know identify there's this gap that you know the ceo or even the operational managers weren't really aware of but through the process that you're able to correct some of those and, and make the system more robust that's got to be a good thing so yeah the the audits that carried out are not there to you know be there to criticize the organizations it's about um, helping them become better in the way they manage fire safety. 
And, you know, and all of the organisations that we work with have got a firm commitment to want to improve the way things are. Um, and and, and the manage, this management system extends not just with the internal body, it also extends to all the supply chain partners that sit outside. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we all also need to recognise is that, you know, we have other legislation out there like the Corporate Manslaughter Act uh, that is there in the event that something goes seriously wrong and there's some fatalities and the organisation is potentially taken to court to demonstrate um, that they were, you know, carrying out things correctly. A fire safety management system like 9797, um, if they've got that in place, it shows that they've gone a fair way to make sure that they've got those controls in place. And the CEO cannot just rely on the fact that he's got someone in his organization that is responsible for that stuff. Yeah. He needs to be able to you demonstrate. You can't put it on one person Absolutely. who knows a bit about fire. You no. need to actually show it a you've got to look at Yeah, you've got to look at the complete control process right the way through from the CEO right down to the operational teams to the way they're procuring services to the supply chain partners that they have in place and making sure that you know regular checks are being carried out on these organisations because it's it's not sufficient in a defence in law just to say, oh, well, I thought somebody else was dealing with that. They need to be able to demonstrate that they've actually tested that. And having the um, a system like 7 in place gives you the framework to demonstrate that you've got all of those controls in place right from the top end yeah. right to the bottom end. And don't forget, a lot of these companies are spending tens, hundreds of millions of pounds at the moment looking at things like facades because of Grenfell Tower. And I would lay my mortgage down that most of these organisations haven't written any internal policy or procedure or strategy around doing it. I think they might have formed a group of people, found out which buildings they thought, and they've just run at it a million miles an hour. They've not really thought about it. You know, there's no risk tolerance that's been considered. They're just well, without being quite specific, I'm currently doing that um, with at least one developer now. What writing that policy? Yes. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a bit like a. Funnily enough, I am as well. Yeah, it's a bit of a reaction, but I think it's the right way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And th this is the thing: if you're doing anything that's costing a great deal of money, and you don't have a documented policy around what you're doing, you are ultimately doing it in a haphazard way, which yeah. is exactly what Triple Nine Seven is there to prevent it's to stop haphazard stupid decisions and that those decisions are based on your organizational um intent and what you as a business stand for which is i think really important okay i think it's it's only fair to finish um we've got john in the studio john how if anybody's interested in um a triple nine seven review of their organization how can they contact you uh they can go to our website which is uh, com. Or they can just um, give us a call or, or contact the Open Fire po podcast to speak to you, Dave. Okay, excellent. John, now you've um, ha had the chance for a little plug, um, you're legally obliged to take part in our 90-second quiz. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Which this week is all about BS 9797 and the various clauses. <laughs> Question one, name your two favourite employees. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which now is your favourite clause in 9797 and why? So, John, as our, as our um, series sponsor, um, I've no doubt that you've been listening to all of our um, podcast episodes this, this series. So, to test this knowledge, I'm going to ask you questions that have already been asked this series. <laughs> really? So, so really, I'm giving you a very good opportunity to top the leaderboard here. Which is, stands at what? 
I mean, it sounds it to me that Dave has run out of questions. What do you reckon? It sounds like the website's gone bust. Yeah. They can't get the questions anymore. <laughs> or somebody hasn't had time to do their research. Free trials right now. If out. you answer every question with the word cheese or skunk, you'll probably <laughs> get one point. Right. So, John Powell, this is your chance to okay. head the leaderboard. At the moment, I think it's two or two and a half is the, the winning uh, the, the winning score. Tom, are you going to do the timer? Official timekeeper. Hang on. We need a policy and a procedure around timekeeping. Global head of timekeeping. Here we go. Uh, in three, two, one, go. Okay, John. Snoring is illegal in Massachusetts unless what? You've got a dog. The bedroom window is locked. In Texas, what famous reference book work is illegal? <laughs> Pass. The Encyclopedia Britannica because it shows how to make beer. Iowa state law prohibits charging admission to see what? Football. I, I'm going to give you a clue here. I'll, no, actually I won't. It might be liveless. No, it's one-armed piano players. What was your clue going to be? I was going to reference someone we know with one arm at the moment. But I suddenly thought, oh, that's going to annoy. Uh, in Silverwood, Michigan, it's against the law to kill what? Using your bare hands to impress a girl. A bear. John's been listening. On Sunday in Missouri, it's illegal for anyone to play what? Table tennis. Hopscotch. In Kansas, it's illegal to eat cherry pie with what? A spoon. Ice cream. Ice cream. In Ventura County, California, who or what can't have sex without a permit? <laughs> Pass. Cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. What was it that sank the German submarine U-120 in World War Two? A basket. A broken toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Time up. <laughs> basket. I, it was one of those questions. Oh, Change the page, haven't you, Dave? That was incredible. A broken toilet. Hops, it's hot. Broken toilet. That's actually quite a famous story. I've heard that yeah. one on Absolute Radio. There's, um, yeah, a broken toilet sunk a submarine. Yeah. Um, John, so I think John did validate that he has listened to the series because there's one question that he got that there's no way he could have known. No, it's true. Um, so if you play the podcast backwards, the, the bear it was the bear question, wasn't it? About the um, yeah. yeah. So it's one point, one point, one point. Excellent. That Importantly, you're not at the top of the leaderboard nor the bottom. About mid table, John. Mid -table. I am at the bottom. You joint, are. joint bottom. Okay. <laughs> um, so, Tom, that's the. Um, this is our last episode of the series. I yes. think it'd be a, with Christmas uh, coming uh, next week. I think it'd be a good time just to run through the various uh, subjects that we've covered during this series. Good idea. We will be back in 2020 with series three, which we're looking forward to. So we started off the series with um, our good friend of the show, Russ Timpson. We did. We had Russ and he came in and uh, we talked to him about fire safety regulation within tall buildings. Um, we talked about um, existing legislation. We talked about the world. We talked about um, what technological innovation... Uh, might come, and also the shortfalls of things like the stay put strategy from memory. Excellent memory. It's good, isn't it? And episode two, we had uh, David Lamb of CLM and um, 
Warren Wright of Trail uh, talking about fire stopping and compartmentation. Yeah, I'm talking about the industry, third-party certification, um, the way clients were looking at, you know, more assurance, more robust assurance. Um, yeah, that was that episode. Episode three, we had Suzanne Eaglin from Kia, um, along with a uh, um, friend of the show, Danny, Danny Dawes. White. <laughs> Danny Dawes, Danny White, um, talking about the industry from the main con- contractor's point of view. Yeah, and third-party certification and assurance again, and about... Um, the work that Danny does around assurance. I was also in there. Were you? Yeah. Oh, you were. Of course, there. you were. Yeah, we had yeah. uh, John, John, and uh, John Power and uh, Clive Miles from CLM the following week talking about their experiences in the fire safety industry over the last 15, yeah. 20 years. And that's how things have changed rapidly in the last two years for obvious reasons. Yep. Uh, episode five, we had um, brilliant Niall Rowan from the ASFP talking about passive fire protection yes and uh, anecdotally I listened to this podcast when you released it while I was emptying my garage waiting for building control to come and sign off my garage conversion Um, and interestingly I managed to hoodwink him with regard to my passive fire protection that had been installed did did they sign it off they did sign it off what are you converting it to Uh, I've converted it from a garage into a um, smaller garage and the bedroom behind it who so how big is your car (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I've got this little very small noddy car that I drive around episode 6 we had uh, Paul Bryan author of um, Fire Strategies um, and from um, Fire Cubed yeah. um, several books as well I don't want to upset anyone but that was my favourite episode of the series I we, think. we do need to get Paul in again to talk about his uh, exploits in uh, the Key West his Key West bar that yeah he's got collapsed three, or something. he's got three books it's called something like being drunk on an island or something <laughs> and it's a three book series we need to read that and get him back in yeah yeah maybe we need to do a non-fire episode with Paul and uh, just ask him about we actually it. need to do a non-fire series Dave we do. We need a sponsor for that, though. Yeah. Um, and then we had um, the brilliant Andy Cunningham uh, of Light for Life. Yeah, glow in the dark, Andy. Um, uh, 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 and also talking about his um, global evac system. Yeah, buildings. I can't remember what it's called. I'm going to remember. I'm going to try and remember. But obviously, we'll listen the to episode seven, life, and then uh, you'll you'll remember. Uh, yeah. Then we had uh, our own Anthony Robson, uh, Franklin Risk Management Services, talking. Us through the MHCLG guidance documents. That was a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. I think Anthony had a tough subject there. <laughs> I and tried. It, and, and, and he did well with it. Um, last week we had um, Mario Lara Lederman. We did. Um, my girlfriend absolutely adored his accent. And why wouldn't she? And she actually listened to it based on the, my recommendation to listen to his accent. Yeah, and um, importantly, as someone who's worked internationally on four continents, you gave him the option, Anthony, of if he could live in a f- the 15th story of any flat anywhere in the world, what country would it be in? And he said, based on his understanding of regulations in all of those continents, he would rather live in one in England. It's interesting. It is interesting. A nice note to finish the series on. Yeah. Um, we finished off talking about Pass 7 with uh, today with Anthony and uh, John. Yep. And I think we've covered quite a lot of ground this series. We have. And uh, again, we've had lots of, importantly, lots of interaction with people out in the industry. I think a lot of what we're saying is being received well by the industry. I think we're, you know, in in a way, a lot of people are listening to this and saying, yeah, that's exactly what we think. I don't think we're saying anything that the industry broadly disagrees with um i think the thing that's um been frustrating this season is i'm desperate to get 
um, Colin Todd in to talk about the Scottish regulation change and how that's going to affect the English regulations, particularly with phase one um, alluding to the fact they're going to review the building heights because of the Scottish change. So I think that would be a really interesting episode. Um, so we are still trying desperately to make that happen. We've also we? got um, NG have agreed to come on and um, we've got the brilliant Chris Doyle who's I'm reliably informed of He's a stand-up bit comic. of stand-up comic on the side. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we might ask him a bit about that, actually. Yeah, and then I'd, we want to get, um, you know, it's a little bit of a call, but, I, you know, I'd like to see Jonathan O'Neill on here because he's saying lots of really interesting stuff about third-party certification and how that might be a statutory defence under the fire safety order. I think that's something we should explore. I think that would be good. Um, Could we get Keith Lard in? Keith, Keith Lard, oh, that's this a good is one to finish on. So we, we I think we need to explain the the Keith Lard reference. So anybody on LinkedIn um, who's in the fire safety circles, you'll probably know, you may have noticed that a fire safety inspector from Bolton, from Bolton, called Keith yeah. Lard, posted on LinkedIn, which caused, and he's done that a lot. He's yeah, been posting a lot, pointing out the the areas of a building where he'd he'd identified as possible fire breaking out. Yeah. Now, um, this caused a lot of outrage, a lot, a lot of fire. <laughs> well, when we say a lot of outrage, one person in particular, we're not going to name no, that. No, person. there were, there were several. If you go through the thread, <laughs> um, there's a lot mattered. of people outraged. But what, what you need to understand is that Keith Lard is a, is a Peter K character from Phoenix Knights. He is. It's a fake account, and it was quite, quite amusing just to see people getting angry with. Um, yeah. Somebody fake. People just jumped into that. In with fairness, you don't feet. get that on LinkedIn, do you? You expect that on Twitter and uh, Facebook. I, so I'm going to say something controversial. I don't think any fire safety professional in the United Kingdom can take themselves seriously if they don't know who Keith Lard is from <laughs> Phoenix Knights. <laughs> if you don't know who that person is, the person that knocks on doors says, fire doesn't knock, and then sets fire to stuff in the rooms. And, you know, uh, it's... He is brilliant, and go to YouTube and look at Peter Kay's Keith Lard character. It's very, very funny, very tonic. And then go on LinkedIn and find the Keith Lard posts. And then go on to LinkedIn, be friends with Keith Lard, say that we've told you to become friends with Keith Lard, and maybe we'll get the person behind the account in. Yeah, definitely. Let's make that happen. Series three, Keith Lard, on here, live, and we'll, we'll yeah. send us your questions. And also, very importantly, Keith Lard um, is not to be confused. This is true. You're going to laugh. Should not be confused with Keith Laird, who was actually a fire safety <laughs> inspector in Bolton. <laughs> and um, Peter Kay actually paid £10,000 to the Fire Service Benevolent Fund in memory of Keith Laird and apologised at the end of every episode Keith Laird was in for um, any mistaken identity and any upset that his, his family might have been through. So that is a true story. Excellent bit of trivia yeah. finish on. If you're interested in coming on the third series of the podcast, which we'll be recording in 2020, yeah. it seems a long way in the future. Q1, financial year 2020-2021. Q1 or Q2? It'll Let's be Q1. Let's see how busy From April. Um, please email us at Dave and Tom at openfirepodcast.com. Yes. We'd love to have you on. Um, we're welcome to have people with any kind of views, whether we agree with them or not. Absolutely. As long as you can make a coherent point and make it interesting, if you can make it funny as well. That's all the, the bonus. All the better. Tom, thanks ever so much for your support through the series. And you, thank you for um, um, dragging me to the right places. I'd like to uh, just say thanks to John for yeah, uh, absolutely through the series. Yeah, mate, and it didn't happen without him. And we'll see you in 2020. Yeah, see you then. Happy Christmas, everybody. Happy Christmas.
The views expressed on this podcast are those of the persons appearing in the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Frankham or any of its officials. The appearance of guests on or the mention of third-party information, products or services or organizations within the podcast does not imply any approval, recommendation, certification or endorsement of them or of any entity they represent. Our podcasts are provided for general information only and should not be treated as substitute for professional advice or supervision from an appropriate property or built asset professional. Whilst all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and the information presented in the podcast may become outdated over time. Frankham Consultancy Group and its subsidiaries, here in Frankham, make no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the Open Fire podcasts. Any reliance on the information provided is at your own risk. Frankham does not assume any liability for the use of, reference to or reliance on the podcast or the information presented within. 